From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Brianna Burns from the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Brianna is the wine marketing specialist for the state and also serves as the executive director of the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. In her role, she helps to promote the North Carolina wine brand and works behind the scenes to ensure things work smoothly. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. Sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we are here today with Brianna Burns from the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Brianna, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Brianna, tell everyone uh, about yourself and what you do with the Department of Agriculture, and then we'll go into talking about the Wine and Grape Council, too. Uh, yeah, so I I kind of have a dual role, role, both supporting the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services brand, which has got to be NC for their wine, cider, and mead, and supporting the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council as well through being their edu- executive director. So, overall... I help to market, promote, support, and work to elevate all North Carolina wine products through marketing, special projects and events, research and development, grants, association sponsorships with the council and the Department of Agriculture. Um, a little about my background, I, I started in uh, retail. So I worked for and managed a retail shop in Raleigh and in Durham for a few, well, seven years. And I did wine buying and education and all the things <laughs> that comes along with uh, managing a retail shop and wine bar. And uh, I'm also a wine educator and I teach the WSET levels one through three and also Wine Scholar Guild um, every now and then and again. <laughs> Excellent. So you really invested in wine. Not only do you work to promote it, but you know stuff about it, which is amazing. I, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, I have been studying in wine for many years, and uh, it really is my passion. It's it's my career now, and um, I can't ever imagine not working or studying in wine. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I have to say, a career in wine, is it sounds very fun. And I think what you're doing in the state, you kind of have a nice behind-the-scenes view of everything that's going around with the wineries, the feederies, the cideries, but then also kind of the stuff behind with the, with the state and how that's working. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, change from private to the public sector, but it's been a really good challenge and uh, a good learning curve, and, and I've really enjoyed it so far. So before we talk a little bit more about the the Wine and Grape Council, uh, so talk to us a little bit more about kind of day in the life of, of the things that, that the Department of Agriculture does to promote North Carolina products, and in this case, in particular, wine, cider, and mead. Yeah, a lot of what the department is doing through Got to Be and See is they work to schedule festivals and trade shows. They're working to get buyers to 
the products where people can showcase their product and then there, there's buyers that are coming to really try to increase their sales that way. So it's, it's actually a lot more like tangible, like getting into it, really testing the products, trying the products, all that kind of stuff. And because most of it actually is food um, or wine, cider and mead or beer or spirits or things like that, there is a really big opportunity that they provide for getting those products out and tasted. And I think that's a really important part of our work for an alcohol beverage, alcoholic beverage is to get people to try it because, you know, in my past sales roles, it's just so much easier to get people to buy something if they're able to try it. And so that's what the Guts to BNC program is really for. And they also keep a, a database of members and they try to support those members in ways that, you know, gives them the first opportunity to come to an event or the first opportunity to try to sell their product or things like that. And so a lot of the marketing does tend to be in-person kind of trade show based uh, marketing, but they, they do also worked in, they work in grocery stores and farmers markets and all kinds of different things like that, where again, getting it out to the public is their main goal. Um, But using kind of what we can in our whole brand idea of like the department of agriculture and consumer services, they really use everyone involved to try to promote those products. Sounds like a lot going on. I mean, there's, there's definitely more than you know about as an average consumer. As far as like working with the department? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're just thinking about like the average person who's you know just on the street or in the grocery store buying or in a wine retail shop, it's just like they don't know about all of these things that are happening behind the scenes. That is, that's really true. And it's interesting to hear you ask that question because something with especially the export side of things, you know, when I started learning more about the export side of not only, you know, mainly for grapes at this time, but also for wine, for beer, for all those different products, the food products, everything, it's just crazy to think about how they get there, how they cross oceans, how they, you know, buyers are coming from all over the world to buy North Carolina products. I mean, you know, agriculture is our number one business. And I think that it's so crazy. It's just so interesting for me to think about like people eating North Carolina sweet potatoes in in Asia or, you know, across the world. I just that is like mind blowing to me. Um, and I think I really hope that we can eventually get, you know, muscanite super popular in Asia. And I would just love uh, in Canada as well. And I would just love to be able to really get wine and grape products out to those countries. And I just think it'd be so cool to even go there and just see like this is a North Carolina product. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah, kind of like on the ground research saying, okay, here it is in a different country. I saw where it was grown. Now it's here. Now what do people think about it? Yeah, it's just, that's mind blowing to me how things move around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, it is kind of, you sit, if you just stop and think about it, it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot, lot here. And yeah, I mean, I remember seeing some, um, some, documentaries about sweet potatoes, North Carolina sweet potatoes going into Europe, I believe. And and it was just like amazing to to understand all the effort that it takes place to make that happen. So lots of good work at the Department of Ag. So for sure. I agree. So let's talk about the other half of your responsibility as executive director of the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. So maybe start with explaining to folks what the council is, how it got started, and, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, the council was started in 1986. It was started kind of before that, honestly. They've been working on trying to get grape growers invested and working together and and growing, I think, closer to like the 60s, 70s. And 
And I know, you know, some of your listeners may already know this, but, you know, North Carolina used to be the the biggest grower of of wine across the entire country. Uh, Before California had really come back from prohibition, um, you know, or even before prohibition, North Carolina was still growing more grapes uh, and making more wine. And then, of course, prohibition did hit and it really crippled our our winemaking our alcoholic beverage products. And as you can imagine, they were illegal and they really went downhill after that. And then, you know, when we we tried to bounce back, it didn't bounce back the same way. And it's really, you know, NASCAR was really popular and and we kind of moved into a moonshine phase. And and that's really where it was around the 60s and 70s uh, after prohibition, you know, was repealed. And it, it's taken us a really long time to to get back to where we were. And so I think when when it comes to that, you know, we we really have to work really hard to promote ourselves. And so when they were thinking about trying to do that in the 60s and 70s, they, they started kind of a little bit of a grape growers thing. And then closer to when they actually put legislation together, that was around 1986. And they put together a group that was made up of winemakers and grape growers and a few other folks as well uh, for the general, the same general mission that we're still basically working to, to, to for today. It's kind of changed a little bit, but honestly, it was still for education. It was still for marketing research, improving awareness overall, um, improving product quality and you know grape growing and all of that. And then as they moved into the future, in 2011, they changed it so that there were 10 members and five of those members were muscadine related and uh, 10 or five of those members were uh, Vitis vinifera related. And of course, Vitis vinifera is the species of very common grape varieties, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Vitis rotundifolia is the muscadine species, which is an indigenous species, species to the eastern coast. And so when that was split up, I think it started moving in the same direction, but almost in the kind of a split view there. And today, I would think, I think that when it comes down to it, the overall goal of North Carolina wine and the council in general is to really elevate, support, market, promote, do research and development for all all grapes, all wines, and now including you know cider and meat as as they are also wine products. It's a big big mission and certainly uh, something, of course, we're all interested in. Uh, so talk a little bit more about the work that the council does specifically um, and, and kind of, you know, how things progress from the council and get get funded and get done and maybe how the public can get more involved. Yeah. So the council meets, we're currently meeting every other month uh, in person or virtually, however, our winemakers and grape growers can can meet really. And we discuss all of the things that go into our mission, which is, of course, marketing being a really large one. So we discuss different marketing plans. We have a strategic plan that was created. It was a five-year plan. And based off of those action items and different things that, that are in that plan, uh, we work with you know that to to feed our marketing plan to decide where those marketing dollars go and how best to utilize that to promote the NC wine brand overall and all of those companies in North Carolina. And then with research and development, we have because we're state appropriated funds, we have a grant fund also that 
is voted on by the council. So grant proposals and sponsorship proposals are sent in once a year and the council will review those proposals and listen to the grantees that have uh, put those proposals in and then they'll vote on which ones they would like to fund that year with the that year's budget. And of course our fiscal year starts in July and ends June 30. So we start really in July with a new budget and try to figure out, you know, where the money is going to go, how much is allocated to our marketing, how much is allocated to grants and sponsorships. And and it's all voted on by the council themselves, those 10 members. Um, I'm a non-voting member. And then we also have other general public uh, guests that can come that are also non-voting. So when it comes down to a vote, it's always going to be the council members, the 10 that are on the council currently. And um, and they, they just try to work to choose things that they think are in the best interest of, of all companies in North Carolina. And if you would like to get involved, anyone, you can submit grant proposals. And I definitely encourage people outside of associations or memberships or anything to submit grant proposals that have something to do with our wine industry, whether it's marketing or research and development or whatever it is. I think that it's important for people to really to try to write a grant proposal and get it in and, and you know, it, maybe it's not voted on that year, but it might be the next year. And I think that anytime we have more heads together, it's going to be a better thing. I also think that uh, people can really use their ambassadorship, their word of mouth more. It's the greatest uh, marketing technique that we have. It's the best way to advertise. And so, you know, visiting local wineries, learning their stories, becoming ambassadors for NC Wine, and just telling your friends is one of the best things that you know, anyone in the general public can do for for NC Wines. It's to go and drink local and to support our our uh, economy. Yeah, word of mouth is definitely one of the biggest things. Uh, we're recording this at the time, you know, the, the North Carolina Wine Growers Conference just happened this past weekend, and they did talk about the word of mouth being one of the best ways that people, when they did a survey of uh, attendees at wineries, how they feel about the winery and why they're on board with something. So can't say enough about word of mouth. And also about sponsorship too, I would like to say we are sponsored uh, definitely by the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. So we do submit those grants and uh, to anyone else who's interested, it, it does work. I mean, we do, it's a little bit of work to actually get the grant written and propose, uh, but it's worth it because if you believe in the North Carolina product and you're working to help increase that brand and awareness, whether it's through marketing or research or whatever else initiatives that the, the council is looking at, it's definitely worth your time. So, and worth everyone's time. Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, anytime that there's a good idea, you know, try to put it in. Don't just think that it won't happen because, you know, we all we all need really good ideas coming in. And and also um, everyone's kind of welcome to join as guests to meetings. Uh, if you're really interested and you want to you know, get in there, we are open to the public um, by law. <laughs> and uh, so you can join a meeting and all of our meetings are on uh the Secretary of State website because it's public knowledge. So you can find all of our meeting times there um, as I post them. And so there, there's lots of things to do. And uh, I think that when it comes down to it, just uh, just being a good steward of the, the local economy and trying to really um, keep things local. I mean, local doesn't work all the time, but it certainly does with wine. So. <laughs> I'll make sure we post a link to the, the, state, the Secretary of State website so that way people can, if they're interested, can, can join one of those. And um, as we kind of wind down on this segment about the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council, um, how can people find out more information about the council itself? Yes, uh, right now, 
there's not that much information on our, our website, but it is coming. So I've been updating the website and changing different things about it. And there will be a section that you can read all about the council and that and our website will stay the same. It's ncwine.org. And uh, soon, hopefully in the next couple of months, I'll have lots of information. You can see who's on the council now on, on our website. And I'll be writing a little bit about, you know, what we've talked about, what we do, how we do it, and um, and maybe what we've done in the past and, and getting reports up so that we can, you can see some of the research and development that the council has worked on. Well, I think we're in a really good spot to take a quick little break for our wine education segment. But when we get back, let's transition into our segment about what is North Carolina wine. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. So what era of wine are we talking about today? Yeah. So if you'll remember, we left off with the Middle Ages last week. So we're going to pick up there. It's going to cross over a little bit, but we are now going to get into the centuries. So we are going to do the 1500s. Ooh, okay. Okay. For the 16th century. Yeah. (laughs) That still doesn't make sense in my mind. Like, this is what we worked on learning in elementary and middle and high school. Yeah, so just to give a little context about what was going on in the 1500s, and set the stage a little bit. In 1503, Leonardo da Vinci began painting the Mona Lisa, which he completed in four years. In 1517, the Protestant Reformation began, and in 1519 through 1521, Hernán Cortés led the Spanish conquest of Mexico, uh, which we'll kind of come back to a little bit later when we talk about Spanish wine and, and how that expanded. But we've got, what, art, religion, <laughs> wars, conquest, that's that's pretty yeah. much summing yeah. up this this century for yeah. us. And that's where wine's going to follow along, as yeah. you told us before. So, And every century before and also after. So. <laughs> <laughs> Some good themes. But yeah, if you'll remember, the Christian church has really been the keeper of wine up until this point. So the Roman Empire fell. Christian church kind of kept that alive, kept wine alive for the viticulture and the winemaking part within the church. And so the influence and knowledge of wine dominated through the Christian church, and they brought it to the rest of the world via the Renaissance during this time period. So we're going to dig into some of the <clears throat> different places now. And so in the late Middle Ages, again during this century, uh, winemakers in the Iberian Peninsula over in Southwest Europe began to use sulfur to preserve wine. Hmm. So they didn't know why they were doing it or what it was doing for at least another 200 years, but it's maybe one of those happy accidents that happened. And so its use in this small area of Europe became a really important technological advance that um, eventually replaced other traditional methods of preserving or fixing wine. You'll think back to Roman times and things like using honey or resin or spices and other flavorings to, to fix wine that way. And since 1487, sulfur has been a permitted permitted additive to wine. Put those two words together. <laughs> um, so that's pretty interesting. Even though they didn't understand the science and the, the why behind it, they discovered that and, and went with it. Would it be the person who found that out? Yeah. <laughs> like, How do you accidentally put yeah. sulfur in your wine? <laughs> I had this random sulfur lying around. Oh, this smells <laughs> terrible. I'm sure they want to drink it one day. I always just picture somebody in a warehouse, like, carrying <laughs> yeah. this big box of stinky stuff and yeah. tripping and Whoops. falling. Oh, no. How could this have happened? But yeah. Happy accident, probably. Yeah. So then for several more centuries from that medieval era, 
Now we're switching over to Germany. So the vineyards in Germany, including Alsace, expanded. And so it's believed that these reached their greatest extent sometime around 1500. That brings us into this time period we're talking about. At this time, the Riesling grape really began to establish itself in German vineyards. And the ability of that Riesling grape to retain its high acidity was sought after and immediately noted. That high acidity combats oxidation. So probably another thing that they didn't quite understand at the time, but they were they knew they liked it for a reason. For a Riesling. <laughs> there we <Yeah>. go. <laughs> we need some merchandise with that. And so in the early 1500s, Germany actually saw a string of very unusually warm vintages. Hmm. And so Riesling at this time, part of why it was popular and grew to that level was because given these warm years, it was allowed to fully ripen and shine. Hmm. But good things don't last. Hmm. So that didn't last long. In Germany, there was a subsequent decline in wine, and that can be attributed to beer. So in Germany... The everyday beverage for drinkers in, in northern Germany in that area in the 16th century um, <clears throat> went to, to beer, and so that led to a partial loss of market share for wine. We're tied to those tastes there. The rise in the wine industry in Germany, too, can also be tied to the dissolution of monasteries, so that Christian church influence. Uh, so all the winemaking know-how was concentrated and uh, in those areas that accepted the Protestant Reformation, which, as you'll remember, was happening at this time. You know, so that went away with, when the monasteries were dissolved. And there was also a little ice age, you know, just a cute little ice age thrown in there mm. that caused some climactic changes and made viticulture difficult and maybe impossible in some marginal areas. areas. So... The mini ice age actually cooled European climates all the way up until the mid-1800s. Wow. It's interesting that Riesling was like, or Germany was at its peak in the yeah. 1500, and then it went downhill, and hopefully yeah. it's back on the rise. But. Yeah. In 1540, though, they had one last great hurrah, and there's supposedly one bottle left called Steinwein. It's a 1540, and it is the oldest bottle in the world. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well. Sounds like time to crack that one. Right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it could have been in my basement. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to move um, countries and we're going to go to Hungary right now, which many of you may be thinking, Hungary, wine. I don't get it. Um, but we have Tokai. So Tokai is a province in the east of Hungary. Hungary is occupied by Turkish, so Turkish occupation is happening. Um, but we have this Italian thinker, Marzio Galeto. So he had been to Tokai, and he spread the word that the wines of Tokai contained gold. Ah. So everyone now thinks Tokai's wine has gold in it. Is he like a TikTok influencer? Right. Like <laughs> original gold flower. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, this gets around, and there's a famous alchemist. I'm not even going to try to say his name, but he went to Tokai. Paracelsus. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Is that the act of swallowing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Paracelsus. Yeah. His name. So he went to Tokai to find this wine that had gold in it. Shockingly, he failed to extract any gold from the grapes or their wine, but the story kind of stuck, and so it got this reputation. But there is some evidence that the growers of Tokai may have been the first to make naturally sweet wine. Um, so they had the super ripe grapes, 
but they got to the point of being super ripe that they shriveled and then were attacked by the fungus, botrytis, that we've talked about, um, or noble rot. So the Hungarians used the word azu to describe the shriveled, desiccated grapes. And the first mention of azu grape wine is in 1571. So that goes back to this time period where we start to see the noble rot. And they were likely the first to harvest the rotten grapes on purpose. So we know Germany does this. The Germans didn't do this on purpose until the 1700s. Oh, interesting. And Tokai wine, sweet, but the grape is ferment. Tokai is the region. So we're still in Hungary. There's a lot that happened in Hungary in the 1500s. We have the Ottoman occupation. So there's all these grapes, um, and they had a red blend. And it's later known as Bikavar. Share more. I don't know. Bikavar. Yeah, or bull's blood. Um, so the supposed secret ingredient in the wine that fortified the defenders of this castle in 1552. So the story goes is that this wine, this bull's blood, the red wine, is that when the Ottomans invaded Edgar's castle in 1552, the general in charge told all of his soldiers to drink red wine. It would make them stronger and braver. <laughs> Which, I mean... Which is true. It's true, right? Especially if you drink No, but if you drink too much... So, you have all these <laughs> well, soldiers... you can drink the red wine. Right. And they're drinking red wine. And I just imagine them being, like, very bearded, oh, yeah. mustaches. And so, they, they drank the red wine, and it worked. So, they defended the castles, but then the Ottoman soldiers that were coming to overtake it saw red all over their mustaches and faces... Mm. And they didn't drink alcohol. Their religion didn't allow it. So they didn't even think of wine as an option. And they thought that they had been drinking blood. Oh. No one knows if that legend is true or not. It could just be a fun story. But So they had wine beard. Wine beard. (laughs) (laughs) The first occurrence of wine beard. (laughs) So also in the 1500s, we have vines that are coming to Mexico and Brazil. So we're starting to see it more in the new world. Hmm. Not much, but um, the Portuguese and Spanish, you know, have have invaded Mexico and Brazil. So they're starting to bring some vines with them. Those were mostly mission grapes, right? That we've heard about Mm -hmm. the mission, or pies. And And then the last note, the late 1500s. So, you know, we've been talking about all this conquest and everything. And with that, we've got a lot of travel. And so we've got long shipping journeys. You know, we've got the Dutch East India Company, So they start out adding alcohol um, and fortifying different wines so that it can make the journey across sea. Hmm. So this became particularly relevant in the southwest of Spain as folks were setting sail for America. And there's a, the English drink a wine called Sack. Usually it was sweet and strong. It came from the Canary Islands, from Madeira, um, in the southeast of Spain. And the most popular sack was Sherry's sack, um, named after the wine town uh, in Spain. And this is the wine Sir Francis Drake brought back when he singed the king of Spain's beard in 1587. Now, I had to look that up because yeah. it was just like quoted as like a common thing. Like we right. should know what the singeing of the king of Spain's beard was. It doesn't everyone Which know. first I read it as signed and I was like, I don't get up. <laughs> Sign it. Do you need my autograph? I'm Sir Francis Drake. Yeah. But the the singeing of King of Spain's beard is a name given to a series of attacks by the 
by Sir Francis Drake against the Spanish in 1587. So he he was raiding the Spanish, mm-hmm. but um, that's the wine he brought back after he raided the, the Spanish. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that was a new one for me. I had never heard of it. So this sack, which we think is sherry, we don't know, but they called it sack, and it was um, immortalized in Shakespeare's Falstaff. So that's one of Shakespeare's most popular characters. He appeared in four plays, but apparently he downed it by the gallon. Mm. Oh, boy. Or whatever imperial measurement they had. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's true. Who knows what it was? But yeah, so that takes us mostly, you know, at a very high level through the 1500s. The fun stories of the 1500s. Mm-hmm. And so kind of to wrap it up, you know, some food pairings that we might get creative with to think about here. So we talked about Germany and the Riesling really rising to prominence at this time. And Riesling is a fun one to pair because it can go with a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. You know, you know us. We like to do it with spicy or Thai or sushi or something like that, a little more unexpected. But you could also go a classic German meal, so sausages and sauerkrauts and schnitzel. Schnitzel. Bless you. Which I don't know if I could do those things together, but I would try. I mean, it's the traditional. So, um, so Takai could pair really nicely with a creme brulee, which I am excited to have some later. And sherry, which we know is kind of the, the inspiration in modern day sack. Um, we found a nice little quote from the Sherry Council, whoever that is, <laughs> the leading authority. On Love sherry. sherry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if it swims, fino. If it flies, amontillado. If it runs, oloroso. So different pairings based on what you're doing and what kind of sherry would, would pair with that. So I'm um, excited to try out some of those someday. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much of a wine world of not only sherries, but all the rest of the wines, too. Mm-hmm. So who knew that the 1500s contributed so much to what we now know today? Yeah. We're getting into the modern times of mm-hmm. wines. It's getting exciting. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> next episode we'll get to America. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone found America? Is America okay? Somebody should check out America. <laughs> um, yeah. So stay tuned for the 1600s. Right. Be fun. Excellent. Well, we've learned a lot, so we look forward to the next one. And Jesse and Jessica, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W I N E M O U T H S. And now, back to the show. So we are back with Brianna Burns. So Brianna, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what is North Carolina wine, kind of from an insider perspective and, and what you think of it. So so where do you want to start? Well, I would I mean, it's such a very, there's such a varied um, palette, if you will, out there. Um, so North Carolina wine for me ranges uh, from dry to sweet, from muscadine to vinifera. Um, so I guess from, from your perspective, Brianna, what do you think of all these different aspects of, of North Carolina wine and, you know, sensory wise, other, how it compares to other regions, any, any of that? Yeah. I talk about NC wine the same way I talk about all wine. And I think it's an interesting point to, you know, I find 
when I talk to people, they, they always have a clarifier with North Carolina wine, right? Like it's, it's good, but it's, you know, this, but, and I just think that when you're talking about, and when you're talking about wine in general, or you're trying to taste wine in general, you just deal with what's in your glass. And it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of folks to to do that because they're not necessarily trained to focus on what's in their glass. They're focused on the the bottle, the label, the, you know, opening it up, the celebratory, pouring it for everyone, you know, enjoying it. And that's totally fine. I don't think that way because I'm in education and I think it is different for me in that way. So the way that I talk about NC wines is really the same way I talk about all wine. I assess the quality um, based on the wine's characteristic aromas and flavors, their structural components uh, through balance, length, intensity of aromas and flavors and overall complexity. And it's just very difficult for me as a wine educator to really move my brain to a different space. So I always it always works in the same way. It always works through a tasting note. And that's not to say that I do a tasting note even when I'm just randomly enjoying a wine. Uh, but I do kind of think about it a little bit more, I think, than other people might. And so I do really appreciate all grapes, all styles and ta- types. And, and I feel that there is a place for every wine. And so I think that when you talk about NC wine and its diversity, I mean, that's our that's our uniqueness. And I think that our uniqueness of diversity is what leads us to to wines that are for everyone. Like they don't have to, nobody has to, you know, not choose the wine that they want because they can find it all. Yeah. I always, for me, I always like to think of it as there's a wine for every palate uh, in North Carolina. So uh, there's not anything that's one, there's not one particular note or one particular type of wine. We've got it all pretty much. And, and, and also the cider and meat. Um, so that, that's what I think is really cool about North Carolina wine, but there's not too many other places where there is such a diversity, um, in wine. So, so I guess, how would you compare us to maybe other regions within the U S and maybe even outside of the U S I think when it comes to, I guess it can start on the East coast, you know, New York, I'll just talk about the United States in general. So like New York and Oregon, Washington, not so much California because California is so huge, but the the other states, you know, they have their grapes. They've chosen what works well and they're making that. New York is still kind of experimenting a little bit, but California also experimenting a little bit because they're going through some crazy environmental challenges. Uh, And I think that overall, you know, when you're thinking about the United States, they have a limited number of grapes and styles that work for them. And that's the same around the world. You know, different French regions have their their particular grapes. I mean, this is this is what I've been studying for years. Like I know what grapes are in every region of France and Italy and Spain and across the world. And and they've done that over centuries. They've they found what works well. They they make that grape and they do or grapes and they do really well with it. North Carolina has had very little time to figure out what's working well. And so we're still in the phase of okay, let's try that grape. Let's try this grape. What's our climate like? You know, we have environmental challenges that are quite different than California, but we still have them. And how do we work with grapes that work with those challenges? And so I think the way that we compare is that we're very similar. We're almost, you know, we're the same. We're just younger and we're just working to try to figure out what is best about North Carolina and our terroir, which includes, you know, soil, climate, weather, 
you know, environmental factors, all those types of things. And so we're just, you know, we're just testing it out. And I think it's a really great phase to be in because you can try a lot of things. And because we don't have a huge number of laws for wine law in, in the right. United States, we're even more experience, experiential, experimental um, to, to do those things. And I think that's fun. I think it's fun that we, you know, in Asheville can make, you know, the Petalon Naturals or the a fizzy red wine style that is reminiscent of Lambrusco, but it's actually from an ancient Vitis Lambrusca, which is, you know, completely different, but they taste so similar. I think that's so cool. And then you've got other places around the Hendersonville that are making, you know, classic Alsatian style Riesling. Rhone in North Carolina or Chablisienne Chardonnay. I mean, these are really cool things that we can do because we are we have more ability to do them. And so as we compare, well, again, we're younger, we can experiment more. And when it comes down to it, we don't feel held back by anything. We feel like we can do whatever we want, which is a really cool place to be, I think. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I know. The diversity is our uniqueness is such a, a key point. We do have the ability to just go out and do whatever. Joe makes fun of me all the time because I pick out wine to go with dinner every night. He's like, what's taking so long? I'm like, there's just so much to choose from. So it's like, okay, there's so many different things we could have. We want, you know, this style or this style or a mead or do we want a cider or do we want something else to kind of go with it? So we're, we have a lot to choose from and there's just so many good things here in the state. Yeah, it's all about your mood. Exactly. And, and the food, mood and food. Um, mood and food. <laughs> they often go together. So is there, besides the diversity in, in the, the styles of wine and, and the grapes that we use or the fruit and honey that we use, um, is there something else that you feel is kind of unique or similar to, to other regions? I think that people sometimes get a little romantic feeling about wine. And they find out that or when they find out that wine is made, wine, cider, mead, they're made the same exact way all over the world. So there's a lot of people that believe that, you know, they go to France and they're drinking wine and they don't get a headache. And they're like, oh, French wine must be made differently than wine from California, wine from North Carolina. And the answer is there's no difference in the way that wine is made, cider is made, mead is made around the world. They have the same techniques. I mean, there are some differences in the process. There are some decisions that can be made that are might be different between maker. But overall, I think it is an important note, and again, not to, to take anyone's romance of, of these wonderful beverages, but, you know, old world style, new world styles, they're, they're basically the same. And, you know, wine is that product that, you know, we all love, um, cider and meat as well. But they, they're just made in the same way. And I think that that doesn't take away from North Carolina's uniqueness or its difference. Um, but I, I think it's good to know that we are very similar. We make wine the same way as your favorite California producer. There's a possibility that we make wine uh, better than your favorite California producer because some of those California producers are mass produced and North Carolina wineries are small and they're making it bottle by bottle. So I think when it comes down to that, you know, I just, I want people to know that there's no difference. And in, in that, I think it makes us really great producers, if that makes sense. I, I'm not getting this across the way that I wanted to say it, but 
Uh, essentially, what I'm trying to say is that a wonderful French producer is making wine the same way that your awesome North Carolina producer is. Like we all put on our pants, you know, the same way, right? That's right. One leg at a time. <laughs> or you just, you know, jump in. That's all. <laughs> so what do you, what do you say is kind of a typical experience? You've been out visiting, I know since, since you got into the job, you've been making a lot of visits across the state and I know you have many more planned. Uh, but what do you say is kind of your typical experience whenever you go to a winery in North Carolina or a tasting room of, of any sort? Well, I'd say for sure North Carolina wineries have really beautiful views. <laughs> we have a really awesome wine country. And of course, our wine country spans our entire state. So right. everything that you can see in North Carolina is, I, I think, is beautiful. Even Piedmont, you know, most people go like, oh, mountains or beach. Those are the most beautiful. But honestly, just driving through our state has been a pleasure for me. I just really like to see parts I've never seen before. And there are so many uh, driving around small towns, big towns, whatever. I think NC wineries, wherever they are, are going to have a beautiful view. I think they all offer indoor and outdoor seating, which is great for our falls and our springs. You know, winter is not even that cold anymore. So it's a good time to go and you can still sit outside and underneath a fireplace or a fire, whatever those things are called, a heat lamp (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and really enjoy it. And of course, you know, in our summers, we've all gotten used to North Carolina summer and we all just deal with it. So it's warm, but having a cold glass of rosé makes it all better. But most also have tasting flights. You're going to find by the glass and by the bottle. You can just really sit with a friend and enjoy and talk over a bottle of wine, I think is a something I've noticed at a lot of the wineries. And some have nibbles. Most have nibbles these days. Uh, some, you know, use NC products, cheese and meats, which is pretty cool. And some, you know, they don't, but that's still really cool to have some nibbles around and uh, or a restaurant, a few that have a restaurant, which is fun. I'd say overall, they're very relaxing places to go. They're, they're never super busy. They're never, you know, super not busy. They're kind of like nice in the middle where you just get to, you can talk to other folks if you wanted to, or, or just hang out with yourself if you wanted to. But there are a good few that have some fun events going on and, and joining in on those with lots of unique kind of boutique accommodations so that you can stay and go to the event, which I think is a awesome thing too. Something that has been added are those accommodations so that, you know, you keep people there and, and everyone's happy. I always like to be able to, you know, drive to a winery that's right next door or on the same ground, you just walk over. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that overall, yeah, the wineries uh, have a lot to offer and they're mainly just a relaxing time. And, and if you get a really beautiful day, it's just something fun to do for sure. Yeah, and I think one of the cool things is uh, a lot of times you can still meet the owners, um, which is so maybe not quite as frequent as it as it was a few years ago, but um, certainly some of the smaller producers for sure. The owners are very hands on and are there all the time. So <laughs> that's still a fun thing for me is going to a North Carolina winery and, and seeing that. Um, we've been to wineries in the Finger Lakes and Virginia. Uh, and up and down the East Coast, and you don't always see that in those areas. So um, it's really cool that we still have some of that in North Carolina. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Yeah, a lot of the owners are still very hands-on, and winemakers are usually there too. And if they're in the winemaking area, you, you know, sometimes that owner, if you talk to them a little bit, they'll say, "Oh yeah, come on back," and and they're they're always really willing to talk to you. 
And you're right. I, I'd say in California, that definitely doesn't happen anymore. Virginia and New York, probably a little bit less. And it's re- it is really nice. Everyone is so friendly and we have really good hospitality here in South. <laughs> yeah. and, and everyone's really proud about the product that they're putting out, too. So I think whether it's the owner, the winemaker, people in the tasting room, the staff, they're all just really happy about, like, okay, this is, they, they truly believe in the brand and in the product that they're selling, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so maybe let's, uh, before we go into what, what you think the future of North Carolina wine looks like, uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about uh, two big months that happen uh, throughout the year. So one is North Carolina Wine Month, and the other is North Carolina Grape Month. So maybe talk about those two uh, special months uh, a little bit uh, for the listeners and tell them some things that might be coming up or things that typically happen during those months. Yeah, and NC Wine Month is in May. And it's a really good time uh, here in North Carolina. We have great weather and bud break has begun typically. And so you do start to see some leaves on the vines, which is always something that people like to see instead of a bare vine around the the winter. Uh, so that's always nice. And we do, well, we do a lot of things. Uh, I know you guys, of course, do the open that bottle, which I'm sure you'll talk about more uh, to kind of start off NC Wine Month for May. And we are going to try to promote NC Wine Month a little bit differently this month, or not this month, in May, this year, uh, where we're going to try to team up with restaurants, try to get wineries connected to restaurants so that you can find a really great bottle along with a wine or food pairing in a restaurant that's nearby the winery of your choice. And also along with doing some potential food pairing uh, exercises or even just tastings in different markets like the farmers markets or even grocery stores around to try to get tastings happening a little bit more. I'd like to really increase certain events like wine dinners and tasting events in uh, retail shops and other wine bars. I think that would be something that would be really helpful for NC Wine Month so people could really have the opportunity to try NC Wine if they can't make it to a winery itself. Uh, or again, meat or cider, although it is wine month. So we're going to talk about a little bit more about wine. But uh, yeah, I think overall, we have some good things in the pipeline. And I'm really excited to get those finalized and really get the promotions coming out for them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of social media, a lot of connecting, uh, you know, wineries that you love or NC wine that you love to places that you can get a little bit more readily. Awesome. I know we're looking forward to it. And we'll definitely be kicking off ourselves with open that bottle of out there as the as may comes closer so nc great month is in august um and i believe they chose august because it is when muscadine starts to ripen uh, muscadine ripens a little bit earlier than vinifera sometimes vinifera ripens in, in august as well but i think they chose that month as kind of like a harvest day and so it's a lot more like harvest tastings harvest parties harvest dinners and i'm looking forward to doing the nc muscadine grape uh, and or was it what did I call it the NC Muscadine wine and food experience again I did that last year and I, I thought it was so much fun we were able to try I think we chose like 10 or 11 muscadines with five courses of dinner uh, that was prepared by the blind uh, pig supper club which is awesome the food and the wine paired so well together I think it was it's so enlightening to pair muscadine with food if you thought that you didn't like muscadine Try with some really well-prepared food and a really good pairing because it will really change how you feel about muscadine. And there are a lot of dry ones out there, so it's not all sweet. Uh, there's a lot of great dry muscadine. We're even moving into some sparkling too, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, overall, again, I think doing some of those farmers market tastings again, doing a, a grape day, you know, we focus a little bit more on muscadine when it comes to grape day, but overall focusing on grapes in North Carolina in general, just trying to get people to try some of the grapes. The grapes are going to be on the vine. You could go to your winery and, and the vineyards and just say like, Hey, can I, you know, if they haven't sprayed recently, you know, try a grape off the vine and, and see if you can, you know, taste that Merlot flavor in the Merlot grape. And I think it's a fun experience to try the grape and then to try the wine. And this can be for vinifera or for muscadine. I think it's cool to see what's inherent in the grape itself and then how that portrays itself in the resulting wine. And of course, here, my educator brain working continuously trying to get people to make the connection between uh, how a grape is grown and how it, it uh, ripens to how it actually tastes in the glass. It's the whole life cycle from grape. <laughs> yeah. So we, we do typically like to wind down and ask, you know, if we're, if we're talking to a vineyard or a cidery or somewhere else, you know, what do you want customers to know when they come to your establishment? Uh, but what do you want people to know when they think about North Carolina wine? I just really want to get across that we really do make everything. You know, we make traditional methods sparkling. We make Sharma, which is like the Prosecco method sparkling. They're dry. We make sweet. We make red. We make white. We make rosé. We make orange. We make, I can't even think of, so there's, we make every category of wine. And to say that all North Carolina wine is sweet is just so limiting. It's incredible to hear because you can go to one winery and still get a dry wine along with a sweet style. So it, that can't be true. It just can't be true. If you can get any kind of style that you want at any winery in North Carolina. Uh, it's just so important for people to know that we are so diverse and diversity is what, again, makes us so unique. And we are one of the most diverse states when it comes to grape grapes grown, which I think my count is up to 87 grapes grown in North Carolina now, which is just ridiculous, by the way. I mean, like, if you study, you're studying wine around the world, like 87 grapes grown, like, that's crazy. But at the same time, they're all cool. They're all interesting. They're, they all taste different. And I think that uh, that's what I want people to really know about North Carolina wine. You know, I, I've studied wine for a really long time. I'm a professional wine taster. I've got a diploma in wine and spirits. Like when it comes down to it, if there's somebody that you can trust, it's hopefully me to, to tell you that we have really, really good wine. And I think that, you know, if you just go to just one vineyard, uh, and if you need recommendations, let me know. Instagram at NC Wines. Just send us a message, and I will tell you five different, you know, wineries, vineyards, cideries, meaderies that are, you know, thirty minutes from where you live, <laughs> unless you're in a crazy, secluded part of the world. But anyway, nah. uh, that you're gonna love. <laughs> and we completely agree. I think we we make everything is it's so true. Eighty seven is a huge range. Yeah. The the last one was Safaravi. I, I knew that um, uh, I'm blanking on the, the winery that makes it. It's right in my head. But anyway, there's a winery that makes Saparavi. And then recently, Southern Williams told me yeah. that they are growing Saparavi as well. And so I'm really excited for both those wineries making this random red grape that has good tannin and really good flavor. And it's just it's just fun. That's just crazy fun to me. <laughs> I just think it's fun to to try to try something new. Absolutely. So are there... 
things that you're looking forward to in the future, maybe a, maybe events or activities or just in general, you know, what do you think the future looks like for North Carolina wine? I think the future is so bright for NC wine. We have nothing but opportunity for North Carolina. And when it comes to, you know, wines and vineyards and fruits and honey and all the things, I mean, we, agriculture is our number one industry in North Carolina. It's what powers all wine, mead and cider across the entire world. And so when you think about it, it's like the number one thing that we do best, our future has to be bright. It's, it has to be because if we're doing, we're making so many different kinds of foods and growing so many different kinds of things. And our wine quality has never been better. You know, in the last, I, I used to buy North Carolina wine when I worked at the retail shop and, and it was good then, but it's great now. And I'm really excited for how higher quality has become. Our wine companies are growing. All the different companies in North Carolina are growing, which I think is great. We just need to, you know, keep researching, keep developing the industry and supporting our local economy and our local products. And I'm just looking forward to seeing this change, I hope, uh, what we were just talking about, the change in the perception of North Carolina wine, because when we're in the industry, like uh, the three of us in the industry, it's just really, um, you know, we get into this more nitty gritty. Uh, and I just want all that to go out to the general public so that we're all included on this awesomeness as opposed to, you know, just a few of us that are already ingrained in the industry. And so I'm really looking forward to changing that perception and and being a part of that. Same, same. And we thank you for everything you're doing, Brianna. And it's not, it doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, I know we get a lot of good, good comments about all the work you're, you're doing from when we're out and about. So uh, keep it up and, you know, let's continue to work together because uh, we want to support each other and help elevate North Carolina wine. Definitely. Thank you. Well, Brianna, thanks again. And, um... and so folks can find out more about uh, North Carolina wine on your website. You mentioned that was ncwine.org. And then there's also Facebook and Instagram, correct? That's right. Instagram's at ncwines. And then Facebook is at North Carolina wine. All right. So everyone go, be sure to go follow and check things out. And that way you can keep up with everything that's going on with North Carolina wine. And if you see something you'd like, go to that winery. Absolutely. Thank you, Brianna. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Brianna. She has some excellent ideas on how the industry can come together and promote the brand of if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, Cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers. Cork Talk is a free run LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.